This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, Tosi Oshinowo shares insights into her architectural practice. Product designer Alvaro Catalandi Ocon reflects on a decade of his pet lamp project. And the artist Asim Wakif discusses his collaborative approach when working with fabricators. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Nigerian architect Tosi Oshinowo founded her Lagos-based practice, CM Design Atelier, in 2012. Now one of the leading architects in West Africa, she's worked as co-curator of the Lagos Biennale and will oversee the Sharjah Architecture Triennale later this year. She will also be joining Monocle's Quality of Life conference in Munich next week, an event which will be broadcast across Monocle Radio. To unpack her practice, Tosa joined me in the studio in Midori House in London and began by reflecting on those first steps when starting up her architecture studio. I'd studied architecture in Europe. I'd studied in London. I finished at the Architecture Association. I had worked a very short period at OMA in London and then I went to Rotterdam and I worked at OMA and I got back to Nigeria and I came with all these ideas of a grandeur of design and I was working at a local practice and it was very boring and I just didn't feel very fulfilled and I just felt like there was more. What's really been great about starting the practice is I've been able to actually execute the fact that you can actually get good design anywhere. You don't need to have surplus or amazing abundance of material and objects. It's the decisions and the principles of which you work and then how you compose and couple these together. And I think that's what we've become known for locally. The irony is that, you know, because we've become known for that locally, we've also started to build an interest internationally. But from very humble beginnings of just really being frustrated and really thinking the value and the importance of design, I wasn't really experiencing the practice I was doing at home. You said principles are key to starting or or working on exciting projects. What are some of those principles that define your work? First and foremost is the importance of thinking about the experience of the end user and actually curating space, the experience of space. And I think if you are very conscious of this when you're designing and you're thinking consciously of what the end user will feel, you end up creating really beautiful architecture that people actually are inside and they don't understand why they feel calm and comfortable or why the building has an aura, but it's because you've been very intentional. Then you start to really play with material, you play with light, with size of space and a very simple logic, but very well executed actually is what I think creates really beautiful architecture and also very beautiful design. So it's not necessarily about having a big commission or a huge budget to work with, but about having clients to go along with and and I guess trust you in that process. How are (laughs) you finding these projects in Nigeria? We would like to have bigger commissions. So I'll just put that out there. I started this practice when I was 33 and didn't have big commission clients. We still don't have big commission clients. Our clientele has changed over the years, but we started very humbly and we've eventually scaled into bigger projects, into houses, into commercial um, centres. And we've been able to, I guess, scale slowly. That's what's been important. As you start to grow a practice, you start to get clients gravitate towards you because you've been able to show these skills and create this interesting architecture and so it's becoming easier to be able to experiment as an architect most 
class just need a project. And the minute that you're going off doing things a little bit elaborate, like, oh, no, I'm not sure if I really want this. Can we just keep it simple, you know? And so it's important to have clients who become patrons, patrons who will allow you to really explore the possibilities and are excited to see what you're going to create. This is very important. This is the one thing nobody kind of explained to me. <laughs> but I'm beginning to realize the value of it because if you don't have clients who are willing to go the extra mile, you never really get to produce really beautiful and experimental architecture. I want to talk about some of your clients or I guess some of your patrons, hopefully. In the context of the projects that you work, you talked there about starting with small shops, but yes. really your portfolio now really seems to stretch this entire <laughs> spectrum. I saw you've recently completed a house on Banana Island near Lagos, which yes. is, you know, this gorgeous villa. But then you've also built for people displaced by Boko Haram. How do you carry these principles across that spectrum from these high end to the, the more so, rough so and ready important. stuff? Again, like I said, it, we, we work with the scale of the person, the individual who's experiencing the space. And I feel very fortunate that we've been able to work across projects with very different costs implications. You know, the house in Banana Island is for a very wealthy um, conservative family, whereas the project for the UN, for people displaced by Boko Haram, is for a community who have very little. But in both projects, it's very much about thinking about the end user, what's going to be the experience of the space. You don't have to spend a lot of money to create comfortable architecture, architecture that makes people proud of self and of place. To do that at both extremes, I think, is very, very powerful. And thinking of people first and foremost and what the space is going to feel like for them I think is always our guiding light and it's a principle that's run through all our projects and I'm quite happy about that. You're celebrating 10 years of your practice this year. If you could go back 10 years and give yourself some advice for starting out, is there anything else you would add to that other than having you know clearly defined principles? I think when you start a business, particularly a practice, because it's so easy to start, all you need is your head, a good computer and a bit of space. And then you can slowly scale up accordingly. But I think it's important with any form of business to put the right structures in place. Because when the jobs start coming and you get really busy, if you haven't got all your ducks in a row, you'll start to miss things or you end up having issues happen and you didn't realise and you wish you had just been a bit better in terms of prepping a structure from the start. But in terms of principles, I would tell my younger self the same thing that I'm telling myself now, which is to remember who you're always designing for and to think of the person first. We haven't yet done really, really large scale projects, so I might think differently about that. But I think for the scale of jobs that we've done, from I guess 50 square meters to we've done up to um, 17 thousand square meters. These principles still are very relevant to the kind of work that we're producing. How does that translate to your furniture designs as well? I, I guess architecture, you've got, particularly if you're designing a villa for a family, you've got a very clear end user in mind. Yes. You've also got a furniture brand, Ile Ila. How do you think about the end user when you're creating pieces for that? I think what was really great about Ilela to start with was the fact that you get the immediacy of gratification of a finished product. A building on average will take from the first day you meet a client to the very end, on average 36 months. It's it's a long process, a lot of iterations, revisions, and you know where you're going, but it's a slow process. But with a chair, after you get through the R&D of getting the prototype working, and then you start to think about the colors and seeing the finished product, the turnaround of a product from beginning to end is much shorter. And the gratification that comes from that is really great. But what's also interesting for Ilela, because we work with local fabrics and we have a lot of local clients, 
there's also been the involvement of the end user in the design because we also get people ask us, oh, can you do this? Can you do that? Can I have it in this color? Can I have it in that pattern? And particularly in Nigeria, where we haven't had a lot of advancement with industrialization and upholstery, because we use local fabrics, we actually get to control a lot of the process. So we can actually produce absolutely anything that we want. As long as we work within the parameters of the loom, there's so many possibilities. And what's been really interesting is to see where the market gravitates towards. There are certain colours that I had assumptions would have done better, that haven't, and others that I would have thought nobody would have been interested. There's a very interesting relationship we have with the consumer because people customise, and this happens a lot with interior designers. If you're working with an interior designer and they have an overall theme for their space, they're going to want to reappropriate what you've got to suit better with their own vision. And so that's also been a very interesting journey to see how we can also adapt ourselves um, to other people's requirements and designs. Has any of that sort of relationship with the end user, with your furniture, influenced your architecture and your work beyond? I guess dealing with people, have you learned more about maybe what they might want? We have learned that there is a, quite a lot of diversity in what people want, even when you're working with a very fixed object. The number of iterations that are, that we've been able to create with Ilela are really endless. Things that I never would have considered. Some of the requests that we've had, we've actually now put into the mainstream because we've seen that, oh, somebody actually gave us a really interesting idea and that's been liked and all of a sudden that, that style of chair is selling so much more. But I really enjoy the fact that as a designer and as an architect, architect I use two different sides of my brain (laughs) almost and I like the fact that the chairs are very striking pops of color and they work very well in neutral spaces and my architecture tends to be quite neutral and very much allowing the end user and the interior to really take on its own meaning within the space without being necessarily restricted by very strong boisterous architecture so I, I feel very fortunate that I'm able to create that kind of balance within my head but also within my design and at Leila chair looks brilliant in a space that I create as a neutral, but it's also a really brilliant piece to for another designer to use in their space. I guess I'm living the best of both worlds. We're going to add another element <laughs> in here in terms of the end user and the people that your work is reaching. This year you're curating the Sharjah Architecture Triennale. Tell us a little bit about what you're hoping people might take away from, from your curation this year. So you know what, Sharjah's really given me an opportunity to really refine my thoughts around this topic. And this really is fundamentally the principles which I've used to develop my practice working um, in the global south. So Sharjah, it's called Beautiful and Permanence, an architecture for adaptability. And it's looking at the under-celebrated innovations that exist predominantly in the global south that have resulted out of conditions of scarcity, which is very much how I practice. So starting a young practice in Lagos, not having very much, but really wanting to push the possibilities of design and then learning and understanding the materials I have available to me and working within those constraints to really create beautiful architecture. But architecture that is also very much balanced with the environment. A lot of the traditional innovations that existed within these regions worked very much in balance with ecology, very much in balance with climate. And it's interesting to find practitioners around the world who are pulling from tradition and also learning from contemporary traditions and amplifying those as they develop their own architecture and their own designs. And I think it's going to be a really refreshing exhibition that shines an alternative light on how we can deal with some of the challenges we're facing today, particularly with our climate crisis. What are you hoping people take away from it? Is that they see these innovations or this different way of practising and apply it to their own local conditions? Or is there something broader than that? Ultimately, yes. It's um, one, to leave with some kind of optimism. (laughs) 
<laughs> that you know, I think we need that. We, we do need that, you know, because I think we really are sitting in a place where we're actually facing a really big problem. I can't emphasize enough, or there are so many people globally who are shouting now that look, this is a real big problem. Our current urbanism through industrialization, through capitalism, we really have used our natural resources to the finite level already. And all of this kind of came about in the last 400 years. And we really do need to now approach this in an alternative light. A lot of the solutions that are currently being prescribed by the canon are very much technologically based. But there was a time that we were living in balance and we really do need to pull back a little bit. So it's really an opportunity, one, to push for more optimism or to help us feel better that there is an alternative for people genuinely to learn from people who are actually pioneering these alternatives and to see examples that exist within the global south where this level of balance, and it's not just about material, it's about policy, it's about waste, working with the climate. You know, there's so many solutions that are possible. And the reality is that everywhere once upon a time used to work with a consciousness of scarcity and a respect for balance and the environment. And we really need to bring this back. It's almost hoping that we get to some point where we're in a position to have real systemic change, change the way we think about the environment, change the way we think about how we build, how we live. And I think this actually, for designers and architects, starts from the classroom. We really need to get people to think differently. I trained very much with the illusion of surplus. When I studied architecture in the early noughties, it was very much, you could pick anything from anywhere in the world and just create this beautiful architecture and it doesn't matter. Nobody really thought about it. And there's a generation of kids now who are very conscious of this, but this needs to really be imbibed in academia. We really need to think differently about how we approach design and how we approach architecture from the base. You talked about optimism there, but is it also a reframing of the idea of scarcity in that it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can just be another constraint that you add to your practice yes. that actually strengthens yes. it. And I think it isn't a bad thing. But I think sadly, because it tends to exist only now, predominantly in the global south, we associate it with something negative because the global south is the area that is least developed in the world. A lot of the resources that were extracted from the global south used to build the global north. But the reality is it's a condition, whether we like it or not, as long as we're living on this round circle, or this sphere, it is a condition that we're all realistically living with. Tosa Oshinowo there. For more from The Architect, tune in to Monocle Radio next Friday, the 1st of September, where she'll be joining Monocle's Quality of Life conference, broadcast live from Munich. Pet Lamp is an ongoing project where unique handmade lampshades are produced by Spanish product designer Alvaro Catalan de Ocon. Created from pet plastic bottles, woven into traditional basket forms, these shapes showcase various weaving techniques from different corners of the world. Initially started as a means to highlight the issue of plastic pollution in Colombia, the project is now in its 10th year, and has since spanned continents, with Alvaro collaborating with weavers from Ethiopia, Ghana, Chile, Thailand and Japan. With more on the project, here's Alvaro. 12 years ago when, when it, the spark started. People were not talking about plastic waste in the Amazon River in Colombia. You know? So it was like the chance to tell a story through a design project. So have a product which might be like a manifesto product, which is telling you something, no? and considering taking like design like a protest design. We came up with a very simple idea, which was picking up those plastic bottles and then looking for 
different crafts around the country, which could turn those bottles into another object. So it was upcycling, it was reusing, not recycling because there wasn't the infrastructure to recycle locally, but we had some of the best weavers in the world no? and some of the best crafts. So the idea was to combine that industrial product with the most down-to-earth craft, which humans have been developing since we started doing things with our hands, no? which is uh, basket making. It started in Colombia, but next year we took it to Chile. We worked there with Wicker, and the year after we went to Ethiopia, Addis Abeba, where we used a different technique, which was coiling. Next year we went to Japan, Kyoto, where we worked with uh, master weavers in bamboo. Back to Chile and worked with weavers. Went to Australia, where we worked with a community of eight weavers in Ramingining, in Aramland, to be able to intensely work with these eight weavers and make one single piece, which went to the National Gallery of Victoria. We start by analyzing the local textile technique and the material they use. And from there, we look at weaving techniques around like a circular weaving, like when you do hats, no, or that kind of products, which, which works well with, with our method of uh, weaving. And then we let a lot of freedom to the weavers. No? So that way, it becomes a real collaboration. And also, they have a real knowledge on, on this. It really took the project to a different level when we understood how far we could take it with them. No? We give them the freedom to play with the patterns, with the colors, and we work on the method, on how to cut the bottle, and then also we decide the shapes to build a collection which is coherent and distinct. We've had to improvise a lot in this project because you never know what you're going to find in these journeys. We go for a month, for two months, and uh, really every time it's an adventure. We go with a very open idea and then we start developing the product as we go. And that's what makes it also more natural, more personal to the place we are working with. From the beginning of my studio, even before Petlamp, I decided to only make one project a year and concentrate on it and move it forward until we were having the idea, manufacturing it and distributing it, you know, self-producing, which is very, I find it very honest because you think twice what you do and you really can concentrate on one idea. And in this case, we've taken the project for 10 years, no? but in a parallel way, we were doing also a different product every year. No? So it was like a new pet lamp and another thing, which had nothing to do with pet lamp. Somehow to keep the head also moving in different directions. When you work with weavers and when you work with countries where this work really means something for them, really makes a difference in their economy. Uh, for me, the worst scenario is really going there, uh, making a workshop, coming back to Europe with 50 beautiful lamps, showing them in a fancy gallery and then disappearing, you know, because that's like bringing up expectations, which, which is the worst scenario for a weaver. Instead, we feel very responsible for keeping this alive. We ask the weaver to keep doing the product after we leave for as long as there's a demand on it. And we buy the product beforehand, we buy a certain amount every month so he can have a constant income. I mean, in Colombia they are weavers which have been displaced by the guerrilla war in Bogotá and they have nothing, but they come to the city with an incredible know-how no? and an incredible culture and empowering them in this is very important. And imagine in these countries where 
there's an economy of a day-to-day -day economy, what the pandemic must have meant for them, where they had to stay at home, you know, and this project really has empowered them to be able to live and to work, keep their families together, and I mean, I think we've, we feel very responsible, you know, for keeping this alive. That was Alvaro Catalan de Ocon. We return to London to continue looking at creative collaboration, but this time with the help of the Delhi-based artist Asim Wakif. After training as an architect and then working as an art director in film and television, the artist has returned his focus to the built environment, often creating large-scale public installations. Bamboo is a recurring material in Asim's work and is used in his current sculptural structure, Venu, on show at London's Hayward Gallery. Central to Asim's work is ensuring that the fabricators involved have creative agency. Rather than sending over a blueprint to be rendered in the real world, Asim's approach is open-ended and welcomes the input of others. To explain how this works in practice, Asim joined this show's producer, Maylee Evans, down the line. Whether you look at art or design or architecture, the fabricators and the rest of the team is just kind of trying to follow instructions and make it exactly as the designers envisaged it. What I found is that there is a lot of potential for creative maneuvering and creative possibilities in the fabrication process itself. Relegating the creative aspect only to a design studio or a CAD environment and fabricating what has been virtually designed or designed on drawings seem not that productive and meaningful to me in my work. Only when a team has good understanding and trust can one get the whole to start working together, not looking at fabricators as just employees with certain skill sets, but also thinking people who having worked with so many materials in different situations and having the experience that they have, that they can contribute meaningfully to the whatever is being created. What do you feel are the main barriers for people to start working like this? I imagine time to experiment without the sort of expectation of a certain outcome is, is a big thing. But how do you start changing people's mindsets so they go, actually, the process is just as key as what, what we deliver at the end of this time frame? I myself teach uh, in architecture colleges and design colleges as well. One thing I find, especially in architecture colleges, whatever has to be designed is actually termed as a design problem. And what you do is a solution. So this problem to solution thing, way of looking at the design, I find is very problematic. I want to look at potential of where something can be pushed, what boundaries can be transgressed or what systems can be pushed. If you look at design as a problem solving exercise, then one tends to be much more careful and not do things until they have been proven to be right. But what I want to try and do is explore things and see what other things can be you know, made viable. It's not that exploratory the way design is happening right now in most kind of formal institutions or offices. If you look at uh, any kind of fabrication or making pre-capitalization, even you could say pre-industrialization societies, people were more often than not making things for each other. There would be a carpenter in a, in a particular 
socioeconomic group he would be helping somebody make a house but the person who is making a house would be making something else the carpenter is needing so there was a very close feedback loop a lot of scope of change and innovation when things were getting made while now what's happened is that all that has been kind of controlled and also because of building regulations and stuff because we have to get an approval before we make something so then it has to be pre-designed which can i think create a lot of problems infrastructure construction have one of the very key ways of assessing the viability or the value of infrastructure project is durability how long that project will last but quite often i have seen that from the time of design to the time of construction already the situation that that infrastructure project was trying to tackle has changed and then after it built also the situation continues to change but it's not easy to adapt it to the changing situation that process that involves all the people can be more dynamic than a very strict hierarchical instruction based approach for i wanted to move on and discuss the yeah. importance of craft and understanding the the skill set i read that you're very keen to learn different skill sets so whether that's metal work working with bamboo cane why is it really important for you to not only be able to understand the theory but the practical elements of of these crafts i studied architecture myself and by the end of that course i thought i knew how to make detailed drawings of for example like a wooden staircase or some really complicated detail but i had very little experience with the material itself that kind of uh, knowledge for me it felt incomplete knowing how to make the technically correct drawing might not actually allow you to experiment or even to explore the material enough so after i finished my architecture course actually i went and uh, apprenticed in a old school uh, furniture making workshop for two months uh, working six days a week you know morning to evening that really changed the relationship between carpenters and me for one thing because the carpenter then started looking at me not only as a designer who's making some drawings and giving them if a carpenter was trying to tell me it's not possible or something i would just take the tool and show him how it's possible to do it would it discuss your use of materials and particularly the use of reclaimed timber or salvaged material from yeah. demolition sites what's yeah. drawn you to using waste and maybe making some treasure from discarded material i want to try and see if i can take discarded material and play with them to create something that makes people change the value scale of what they're looking at i have been working with bamboo for over 25 years and i find that it's a very very versatile material when you look at a whole bamboo it's a really lightweight and strong pipe section but when you cut it up and use it as strips it's really flexible and uh, can allow for weaving and many different aspects in some way this project is also an accumulation of many years experience if you look at the bamboo itself or the form of the structure itself one thing that is really trending right now is what is being called parametric architecture which is partly to do with being inspired by natural forms to derive built environment but also using uh, computational algorithmic relationships to work out the form of what to build what i found actually is that basket weaving and cane work have a lot of physical similarities to what these computational algorithmic forms that are being generated on 3d environments so i want to see if weaving as a vernacular form can be scaled up to create large scale parametric architectural forms i actually had a meeting with a parametric design firm in london while i was working on this project where i was trying to talk about collaborating between a vernacular and a software based system 
but they were shy to follow an improvised approach like mine because for them the code and everything has to be sorted before the command is given while i was talking about changing the flow of the command on the fly as things are getting built what happens with bamboo is that the material itself creates those relationships and that kind of form so you can just push things pull things into it and there's a lot of you know innovation on the fly that one can do for this particular piece you're yeah. really encouraging a very informal approach for visitors they're allowed to touch and and play and actually yeah physically play the structure as yeah. it's an instrument why yeah. do you want to encourage that kind of i guess less rarefied or oh, look at this structure from a distance and instead yeah. more of a get up close you know see what this is made of yeah. how it's constructed although i'm in the business of making exhibitions and art i find going to museums is really boring it seems like there's a invisible barrier between the artwork and the viewer even if it's made out of stainless steel with nothing will happen if you touch it but you still not allowed to touch it. at the same time there's this other aspect of at least in europe and the us which have people more people go to museums as compared to india but in places like europe and us i think people have this uh, perception of that they're going to see something mysterious which they may or may not understand but it is high art so they will rise in the on the cultural ladder by having experienced it and that's just too heavy and boring in my view i want people to have some fun and enjoy themselves while they're viewing art and i kind of consciously put in interactive systems whether they are analog like this one or even interactive electronic systems and these systems are actually kind of designed to reward curiosity in some ways i know a lot of uh, people who have walked past that installation but they didn't even realize there were any drums in it because they didn't go and spend enough time or try things while there were other people who heard somebody playing and then tried it themselves and some others who just went there and saw that there were some sticks and started playing with it the viewer forgets about this formal art appreciation uh, idea and becomes a bit juvenile and carefree not so conscious about how they appear or what they're doing they're just trying to have fun doing something and when people are in that kind of a mind frame i think it's a good time to put the seed of an idea in their mind without being too didactic or too direct about what is trying to do and what is that seed of an idea that you'd like them to leave with there are ideas of the vernacular new tech accessibility of artwork to to the public about touching and feeling about being adventurous and yeah and having fun as well but i'd rather that the person came up with the questions and answers themselves asim wakif in conversation with maylee evans his installation venu is on at london's haywood gallery until the 22nd of october 2023 And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our 5-minute midweek bonus show Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's show was produced by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manese, and you can reach me on nm@monocle.com. Thanks for listening.